And in the meantime, welcome everyone to the I guess last session of both the invention of Seventh Day Week and the last sort of session of the pre-Pesach half of of Springsman. Um, next week we will. Next week there is one more class, Seder Telling, with Rabbi Leah Farna and a and a well-staffed panel. But in the meantime, no, it is April. It is April seventh. This is the invention of the seven-day week with Dr. Uh, Ezra Zuckerman-Sivan. We've had the pleasure of learning with him for four work for previous weeks, and now it's the fifth session. And it's been very much a pleasure. People who are, if you are watching this thing or watching the recording, you can catch up with other recordings of, of this class and other Grisha classes in our audio library. You can, if you're watching this, on, you can also find recordings of our soft programs if you're interested in something that you can read, you know, to inspire you for the Seder or to have something Torah on as you clean as you clean, or to think about Pesach in a new way. You can find a highlight highlighted selection of those programs as part of our special Pesach website at pesach.drisha.org, along with registration for Seder Telling and Rabbi Silver's new project, a podcast of songs from the, from the Seder with working with fellow musician Andy Statman. This four, this four, this four um, episode series is, is available on our website, basehealthfoundation.org, on YouTube, as well as on your, as well as on several podcast feeds, including but not limited to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. And if you want to uh, to find it, all you need to do is look up, look up. Uh, one moment. So I can remember the title. To look up Seder and Song. Um, you need me to vamp more. I, I keep vamping. Are you doing that for me? Yeah, you look like you were. Yeah, you look uh, like you were. <laughs> this is. Uh, I was taking advantage of the fact that you were. Uh, this is fine. I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right. Um, um, then thank just, you. Uh, then one technical note to everyone watching. It's great to see your face. Um, if you want to be, to see and be seen, uh, please accept the invitation to panelists. And please, if you are not currently speaking, mute yourself. That way, we avoid any weird audio feedback on recording. And with that, good evening. Good evening, indeed. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks for the tap dancing on my behalf. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, so it's been a bit of a journey, a little bit of changing mix of folks who are here. Um, nice to see you all this evening. Um, let me share my screen. Um, welcome back to Ozzy and to Celeste and Charles and Noah, Kayla. We got some other folks joining. Let me, um, I, I want to remind you, so we started this whole thing back now five sessions ago, or you know, the first session in any case, um, you know, there was a scientific puzzle, right? So we've been focusing on textual puzzles for the last several sessions. But where we began was with a scientific puzzle and then a crisis that it caused with me way back when I first read a book, Eviatar Zubavel's The Seven Day Circle. And this, the puzzle 
it is a puzzle that has that stands independently of anything to do with the Hebrew Bible, with the Torah. And that puzzle is how is it that we, how and why did we get this institution that we all know and love, the seven day week? And I say we, I mean not just Jews, not just observant Jews, but pretty much everyone on this planet by now over the last uh, couple millennia. And for many people, even just in the last uh, uh, century and a half or so. Okay. So, and what I, I'm going to just try to summarize what that puzzle was, because we're going to come back to it today. This is where we're going to end up. And that puzzle can be summarized on, in three words. Here it is. Three words are, number one, that surprise, surprise, the seven-day week was invented. It's artificial. Uh, and therefore, it had to be invented to come into being. Vast majority of human communities, civilizations, whatever those words mean, did not have anything that resembled a seven-day week. Number one. Number two, if you start thinking about it, it's very mysterious. Uh, in particular, it's a, as we said, it stands out from other calendrical cycles which exist all around the world. Number one, in being unique in that respect. But number two, in that it's not really about uh, uh, change or transition, marking, say, intervals of time, like for contracts, for big events, like, you know, anniversaries, et cetera. It's about regular return, about the routine rhythms of day-to-day -day life. That's what the week is used for. It's always been used for that. Um, you know, we don't remember our, uh, the days of the week we were born, and it's not very salient to us. What we remember is our birth date. The birthdays, um, sort of the days of the week are sort of our every, everyday experience. Um, and so that's weird. Like, how did that come about? How did we basically, people who already had existing day-to-day -day routines, all of a sudden have their lives disrupted and have a new routine introduced? And, uh, you know, in general, so then the other way we, we summarized it, I said, right, is that the week stands out. Actually, let me just jump ahead and show you, come back to this. That's one thing I was, right? So if you remember, I compared it to other social institutions, right? And to writing systems, currency, uh, all kinds of things. These are all different kinds of social institutions and conventions. And what I said was they all have all of those things have the seven, these seven things in common, but the week stands out, right? The week stands out. Um, so it's similar in that nobody owns it, everybody owns it, diffuse ownership. These things don't belong to any one person, commercial enterprises, et cetera, right? The other part is they feel essential to us. We would be kind of, you know, we would be disoriented if we didn't have any of these things. Like what would we do if we had to take care of our, uh, of our, our departed members of our family if we didn't have our routines? Uh, for taking for doing that, if we didn't have our keyboard, we wouldn't know how to type, etc. These things that we regarded as essential, um, for many of them, not the keyboard, perhaps. For, for many of these things, we come to take them for granted. They come to feel um, um, uh, naturalized, and they're very, very hard to change. Very, very hard to change. And then what's interesting is that the week stands out, right? Because it is hard to say exactly what problem it would have solved at the very beginning. Number one, so what problem did it solve? And number two, it actually doesn't feel like much, like everything else kind of like we have, we're ambivalent about them in very, for various uh, reasons for many of these things. And the week we tend to love. And then, so as I put that back to the very beginning of, the, of, the, of, of this um, course, right? 
It's strange, it's mysterious that the week would have been uh, invented only once. That's what we know. It was invented, uh, it was incubated in the um, in Jewish communities by the late first millennium BCE. Uh, and that's the source for any observance of the week that we have today, even if for people who don't observe Shabbat, they observe a week that came from, uh, that emanated from and diffused from Jewish communities in that period, okay? And so it's part of the mystery here is why was it, how, how and why was it invented only once? That's strange, right? Why was it invented at all? And then how and why was it invented only once, okay? Now, as we've gone, let me just go, go back to those three, those three words. I'm going to talk you through this. So number two, it's invented. Number two, it's mysterious. And number three, it's some kind of disruption. That's the way I'm going to summarize it all. Okay, and this is nothing to do with, with Torah. This is the way it, it, it must have been this way. Um, it is this way. Uh, now, as I said, the thing that got me interested um, once upon a time, and I got, it was at first thought, as, as I think many people do when they first hear about this, there's a, there's a contradiction or a tension between all of this and the Torah's presentation of the seven-day week. And in particular, it seems like Breshit, right? Genesis is presenting the week is built into nature and that seems to be incompatible. So as, as we got into the course, the first thing we did was to realize that that's not true, basically, right? That the first session we did um, went into just a simple fact that the, the week as a human institution, as a noun, doesn't appear in Abreshit, right? And not nor as a cycle. Instead, it's the metaphysical idea of Shabbat. And then we saw that actually um, we turned our attention to the first time Shabbat appears as a noun, as an institution, and that is in the story of the man in Shemot Tetzayim, Exodus 16. And we spent a lot of time on that. And as we got into it, we saw in general that the Torah's account is consistent with these three words. It is invented, and they're experienced the way that the way that that the, that the that Bnei Israel in the the wilderness are bewildered for, by the man. So that man is now intrinsic to it. The experience that's the first week that's experienced in the Torah's account of uh, um, of you know the 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 beginning of the cycle, uh, and the Shabbat itself is a mystery to them. They're kind of bewildered by it. They have to be told, hey hey, pay attention. This is a good thing. Uh, it's, it exists, like you might not be able to see it, it's immaterial, it exists, pay attention, it's here, and then there's that first Shabbat, that is fulfillment of the metaphysical idea of Shabbat, um, but is distinct, and it's human now, and it's a reenactment of creation. That, I think, was then, so then in our third session, we focused on, I'm sorry, the second session, we focused on the idea that it then follows that that first, that first week is going to be super important. Right? It's going to be that turning point we're talking about. It's the paradigm for all future um, experiences of the Shabbat, that first Shabbat and that first week of that cycle as it continues. And that's why it is, it's an, a fusion of the experiences of uh, the of, sorts of fulfillment of creation and both, both senses of creation we've talked about um, as uh, in a sort of uh, imitating God, being a little creator, um, as well as being sort of God's junior partner in relation to God. Uh, and it's, and it's a um, fulfillment of sort of a climax of the Exodus process. And then it infuses that idea in the second debrot of, of sort of an egalitarian idea, uh, everyone sort of standing naked in a sense before, before God. Um, and then the most, I think the least, um, the, the session that we did, the third session was the least 
connected to the scientific mystery um, for this, but also compatible with it. And the idea this was where we were focusing on where that story of the Shabbat and the Man fit into the um, narrative of Avdut Mitzrayim. So we're going to be talking a lot about this, uh, right? The um, in, the uh, descent into enslavement and then redemption from Egypt, and that um, it is a it was a mechanism for um, shifting our orientation, our theological orientation, our understanding of God and our relationship to one, to one another, um, where we're shifting towards um, the notion of God as um, away from not, God is not just a, a, you know, a, a warrior on our behalf um, and, and of strict justice, um, but one of a provider and um, one of a father, essentially, of a, train, of a father who's training us, right? And that notion of childish childlike thisness and sort of a, a childlike orientation towards this whole process, I would suggest is also consistent with this notion of mystery, this notion of newness and invention that is, again, consistent with the um, scientific, what we know scientifically must be true about the um, start of the seven-day week. Now, then we're, we talked about, now let's get into the last session. The last session was where we focused on the mystery of Shabbat as capital punishment. Okay, now actually, let's go to the first source for today. And we'll transition to the, the big question for today. All right. And um, let me bring that up. Short. Uh, second. There we are. Actually, five. Okay. So, If what we've seen so far is in general that the Torah's account of the first week of the beginning of the cycle is consistent with what must be true scientifically, okay? We're beginning to see something else last week, right? What we begin to see is that actually knowing something about the history of the, the seven-day week is helpful for us in unlocking a mystery in the Torah's presentation of the Shabbat. And that is, um, as we said, if we look back, look at that, oh, one second, bring up that source. Uh, why can't I? Oh, I know. I'm just in the wrong spot in my screen. One second here. Okay. All right. So this um, sugya, this paragraph, this pericope, that is the last seventh of the seven revelations that Moshe receives on um, Sinai prior to uh, the sin of the golden calf. We focused on the middle of it last, uh, in, in last session. That was this, I think we take for granted, but actually we should be bewildered by the fact that uh, Shabbat is, Shabbat violation is a capital crime. And what we developed based on the story of the wood gatherer, the Mekoshe Sheksim, and then if you remember um, how that related to other stories that had um, that, that both back to the story of the man, but also the other stories that have that, uh, that verb, the Koshesh in it, right, is that it's a vehicle for teaching us about the fragility of social cooperation in general when resources are very constrained, right, so the wood is precious, and belongs to everybody. And so there's going to be a very strong temptation to grab it. Um, as we said, the same thing is true for food, the case of the man, but 
the incentive to, 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 to do that is miraculously turned off. We get to learn that that's what's threatening the Shabbat, um, but we see it much more in, uh, in the case of the wood gatherer. Um, and I would suggest that part of the reason we can get there more easily is by understanding that the week is a new and actually now we see fragile institution. And we're getting a sense, now we're getting a sense of why it might be hard to start the seven day week. Okay. Now I wanted to cast your attention, by the way, we've also looked at the last bit of this. It's like three parts to this, um, to this paragraph. The last bit we're most familiar with. So after we learn the, the penalty um, for Shabbat violation, which is both uh, capital punishment and being cut off from the people, karet, we have um, you know, two verses we're, we're all very familiar with that we say regularly on Shabbat that describe Shabbat as covenantal um, and that there's something for, for Israel to do. This is the first time the notion of Asiyah shows up, that we are God's partner in building the Shabbat. That shows up again in the second Dibrot. Uh, in 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 uh, in separate Dvarim and in Deuteronomy, but I want to now focus on the first few, the first verse, really. After this opening, there's a double opening here. It's also kind of interesting. Um, God, Moshe is instructed to tell Bnei Israel. Um, he says, "Okay, so all these instructions about building the tabernacle, building the Mishkan, very, very, very important. But, but, but there's something even more important. So this is all understood. This Ach et Shabbat Nevertheless, you must observe my Shabbatot, uh, the, the, the Sabbath of the cycle. Some people understand this to mean both the Sabbaths and the Yamim Tovim, whose holiness festivals, um, you know, uh, of which Shabbat is primary. And why is this? Here's what's in bold. Because it is a sign between me and you, that is between uh, me, God, and you, Israel, the Dorotechem, through your generations, that is sort of forever, that you should know that I, God, am sanctifying you. I'm responsible for sanctifying you. What does that mean? I, God, and I'm basically that. Now, one question that comes up is which is, so what's the he there? What is it? And I'm persuaded by, um, I think Hirsch says this, maybe some others, that the he here, the it, is Shmirat Shabbat. That's really the only thing it could refer to. So there's something about the observance of Shabbat. The fact that we will be observing Shabbat. And by the way, again, Shabbat means not just um, the day of Shabbat, but the week. It has to mean that. Okay? And that's what it means in um, biblical Hebrew. But... If you, you can't observe Shabbat without also observing the week, right? So um, through your generations, it's a sign that you should know that somehow it imparts knowledge that you will know that I, God, am responsible for sanctifying you. Now, you might think, one might think that this is a common thing for the Torah to say. Maybe it says this about other mitzvot. Maybe it says this about other commandments. And I'm here to tell you, it does not say this about any other mitzvah. This is unique. The idea that somehow our observance of a mitzvah, of a commandment, imparts knowledge of God, and specifically of God through the generations, right, is responsible for, sanct is the agent who's sanctifying us. 
that is unique. If you look in the second source and the third source, you can see what I think are the closest calls, the things that are the closest to this. The second source is from uh, Vayikra, Leviticus. It's interesting. There's a lot of questions you could have about this. I don't have time to, to get into them and I don't have the answers to all of them, but somehow our living in Sukkot, right, imparts knowledge or is in order so that we will know. Through also through our generations, notice similar language, right? That we'll know something historically. We'll know that earlier generations had been redeemed and been, you know, basically God had taken care of them, and right? But you'll notice the difference here. There's no notion of a sign here. It's not a sign. And it's not relational in the same way between me and you, right? That you should know that I, God, right? Very relational here. It's separated by generations. It's sort of, it's for historical knowledge. Right, not as intimate, not it's distinct, it's related, but it's distinct. Something distinct. And if you look over here, this is um, a little bit earlier from our the one that where I'm focusing in Tetzava. Uh, this is so, this is um, the description of what will happen with the uh, daily offering, daily burnt offering, the Olat Tamid. Okay, and when you see over here is that once it's up to here, Olat Tamid the door, notice also for your generations. It's going to be, so it's also related. It's going to be a uh, institution that's there for, through the generations um, where I'm going to meet with you, I'll, you know, at the appointed times and, and speak with you there, um, meaning the, with the Kohen Gadol, right? And then what you see here are four steps that God takes. sham, right? I will meet with you there um, and um, Israel will be sanctified in, in my presence. The Kidashti, and I'm going to sanctify the tent of the meeting, meaning the Mishkan and the altar, and Aaron and his sons. The um, Shachanti, so it's three actions of God that I'm going to live there, famous, I'll dwell there in the sanctuary as it's dedicated. And I will be for them a, uh, you could say a God, but more specifically a teacher or a guide or something like that, right? And then look at the last, this is related. And they will know, they will come to know, right? Then I'm the one who took them out of Egypt. So it's similar in that it's also about imparting knowledge. But notice what's distinct again here. It's, these are actions that God takes, right? Actions that God takes that somehow we recognize in the sanctuary, right? And that lead to knowledge. And it's also kind of the third person. It's also not as intimate. There's something very distinctive about the language that really jumps out in our sugya, which is about it's intimate, it's a sign, and it's somehow ongoing through the generations, right, relationally between God and Israel. That's very distinct. If you look in Yechezkel, this is source four, you will see that Yechezkel in chapter 20 quotes. Uh, we looked at this before. This was one of our sources for because here's where Yechezkel describes um, the Shabbat as having given in uh, during the Exodus. That's one reason we looked at Yechezkel Chaf. Um, but you'll see over here that twice he quotes exactly the same language. Here it's in the third person. He's describing back to what happened in the generations. Um, and he's clearly quoting from our verse. And he does it again later on, same thing. Uh, where is it? Here it is. Um, same thing, exactly the same language again. Clearly very important. And like I said, does not show up for any other mitzvah. By the way, there are a couple, like, so, you know, tefillin is a sign, 
tzitzit is meant to memory, but not, nothing like this kind of language. Neither of those has the notion of knowledge of God, knowledge of God is sanctifying us, very, very distinct. So there's something going on here that's very distinctive of the Shabbat itself um, in this particular kind of way. Now, if you look at the various commentators, many of them would, I would put it this way, run away from this, from what seems to be the plain meaning of the text. By the way, translations of this verse are very, very, very consistent, which tells you the plain meaning is very clear. And they're consistent with what I was describing. Um, if you look at Rashi, I would say he, I don't know why, but he, you know, sometimes Rashi really runs away from the, the plain meaning of the text or veers away from it or something like that, you might say. And he says, oh, Shabbat is a sign that the, the, the non-Jews will know us, you know, uh, uh, you know that we'll be distinguished by, um, which is true, but definitely not the plain meaning of this text. This plain meaning of the text is between me and you, right? That you, Israel, should know. So that's that, right. Now, here's the Nitziv. This is um, the uh, commentator, I think, that comes, that meets it head on. We're going to see, I like his, his interpretation a lot, but I think it's going to be lacking, um, missing something. And so here's my translation of it anyway. What he's saying here is that there's something about, now he's giving an analogy to the temple. Interestingly, he also says something that even non-Jews feel about Jewish practice. Uh, in, meaning a, a synagogue or a Torah scroll. He's talking about some kind of spiritual experience that we can feel um, through a, um, you know, through a, you know, that we all feel hopefully, right? In a shul, uh, in a ritual, right? Um, that would have been true for the Beit HaMikdash. So he's referencing maybe um, what I just showed you. Um, that's the description of the um, feeling that we might have in, um, um, in the Mikdash. Um, but then he points out that Shabbat and he says festivals too are distinctive because there's no external feeling, meaning, right, that it's something intangible, immaterial, right? It's not something that's based in uh, material practice in any way, like in a, in a, in a, in a shul, a ritual or anything like that, um, uh, or material, you know, objects like the Torah scroll, like he's mentioning, Okay. And so it's really special, a special kind of experience because it's intangible. Um, it, you know, th this is a special dear kind of sanctity. Now, I like this interpretation a lot, but it's missing something. And what I'm gonna suggest is what it's missing is, uh, so I think it's gotta be part of the answer. Part of the answer, there's something distinctly um, about, distinct about the experience of the Shabbat, that seems to be really important in imparting knowledge to us somehow. Hopefully that resonates with people. <laughs> um, it does to me. Uh, I think, you know, when people try out what's great about Judaism, they take the, you know, uh, Shabbat is in first place, I think usually. Um, there's a reason for that, right? Um, and so I think that's part of what he's tapping into here. Let me go back to my slides. Okay. Now, Here's what we just said. Now, here are the issues, I think, with the Nitziv. Not that he's wrong, I think. I'm not going to argue with him, but I'm going to say that it's incomplete. Okay? It's a beautiful idea. Why is it incomplete? Number one, notice that he says it's our observance of the Shabbat. Uh, I'm sorry, the verse, uh, the Pasuk is emphasizing our observance of the Shabbat somehow gives us that knowledge. And that's not inconsistent with what he's saying, but I, that, that seems it, deserves, it has special emphasis in there that I don't think is fairly 
fully captured in his interpretation just yet. More importantly, I think um, that so the that verse that pasuk about somehow the God is um, sorry that Shabbat observance is what you might call a proof sign, right? That it imparts knowledge of God, and God is sanctifying us. It doesn't stand. It's not a standalone verse. It's the opening to the rest of the this segment. And so, if you want to have a, a you know interpretation of it, it would help to have one that actually accounts for the what the other things that are in there. And we've seen those other things so far. Um, we and, and here they are, right? So the end of it, right, is somehow Israel has a covenantal role. This notion of brit in making the Shabbat. We've also talked about something else, which is there, which is the special experience of creation, as mentioned here. So that seems to be really important as well. And maybe first and foremost is the last thing we talked about last class, which is the fragility of the Shabbat. You would think that if the, the Torah is making special emphasis on the fact that Shabbat observance imparts distinctive knowledge of God, that it has something to do with the next thing it, it talks about, which is the, the implicitly the fragility of the Shabbat and the need therefore for everyone to observe it and even to have harsh penalties, which we then saw through the story of the Mephoshesh Yitzim was about the fragility of the Shabbat. Okay, now I want to say, I'm going to share with you, those, this will be the last bit we do, which is, if till this point, I already showed you this stuff already, so we're not going to do that. Okay, okay. If to this point, what we've seen is that the Torah's account of the beginning of the seven-day week is consistent with what we know since scientifically. They fit together, okay? We began to see last week that knowing the science actually helps you unlock a little bit of the mystery of the Torah's presentation. I'd say that's true more generally what we've done, but certainly last week. Now I want to come back to what I promised at the very beginning. And what I promised at the first, cl first class was not just that the Torah's account is consistent, right? But that actually the Torah's account helps us do better science. It helps us unlock the mystery of the, the big question, which is why the seven-day week was only invented once. Okay? Now let me show you what I mean by that. So we look at the week today. What I said, what you what you notice is number one, the week, the week feels essential to people. Hard to live without it. I show you some evidence from our experience of the pandemic. Maybe you experienced it yourself get disoriented without it, people feel that it's essential. Number two, we feel that it's good. We love the weekend. I say we, generally not just us uh, Jews who love Shabbat, right? Um, looks like we lost Kayla. I hope we get her back. <laughs> um, and um, okay, and then the thing that people tend to think about it is that since the seven day week is just an informal social agreement, doesn't require any special technology, doesn't require any special equipment. Any group of humans in any time in world history can agree to just count a certain number of days and repeat and do something different about those days, right? It doesn't have to be a day of rest either. So if I tell you about something that's essential, that feels essential, that feels good, and it's easy, you would expect it to be everywhere. But it was only invented once. 
And the problem is with the assumption, okay? So if I, you, did, you did not know, now, so I wanted you to take, take a moment, everybody here, right? And imagine you never heard about the Torah, okay? And so we know nothing about um, you know, the Torah and we know nothing about the seven day week because it doesn't exist. And the big question I think is, would the first people to encounter the idea of the week think it was essential? or that it was good. Men would, <laughs> why Noah? Oh, Ozzy, I see your question now. Yes, Tefillin is called a sign, um, but it does, it's not a sign of knowledge, right? And not about relational in that same way, right? So a lot of the other things have pieces of it. I think you're right about that, Ozzy. That, I think that's right. Okay, but to my question, so imagine a world where the Torah hasn't been given yet, okay? And imagine that um, somehow someone had the idea for a seven-day week. Would the first people you know, who encountered it think that it was essential? Could they think that it's essential? Clearly not. They had lived all their lives without it. You can't think something is essential if you've been living all your life without it, right? And can you think that it's good? Well, maybe, conceptually, possibly, right? But not in the sense of something we've actually experienced. Right? I mean, so think again, most societies and vast majority of societies in world history had nothing like a seven-day week. It would have been maybe an abstraction to them. Okay? So the idea that it was essential and good, no reason to assume that. You would assume the opposite. They wouldn't have thought it was, how could they imagine that it's essential? They might've thought conceptually, maybe it sounds good, good for you, right? Who knows, right? Now, what would they might've thought instead was essential and good? What kinds of things related to social rhythms might they have thought were essential and good? What are they more likely to have thought were essential and or good? Seasonal. Yeah, seasonal, okay. Um, what they're used to, right? What they're, how they're building their lives, for their parents to live their lives, and everything, right? And what makes more sense is what's natural, right? Exactly what Charles was saying. That would feel essential and good if you had to ask anybody, you know, why do you do what you do today different than yesterday? Because, like you said, change of seasons or something like that, right? The moon is changing, the sun is changing, the seasons are changing, etc. Right? Yeah, existing nature and culture-based rhythms of what they would have thought. And so you tell them, well, I know it's essential and good. I've experienced it, right? I know what it is, okay? That's who they were. That's what they knew, okay? So the first problem that anyone who wanted to start the seven-day week would have faced would be ignorance. You have to somehow convince people that something that's very different from what they experienced is going to be better without having experienced it before, with, where it's a, just an abstraction. That's a hard thing to do. Right. Um, and they would have already had positive experiences or anyone who like, you know, uh, in normal times, you would think that normal social rhythms, what we know, that's what I would be disoriented without those. Right. I'm not going to disrupt those. Now, the other problem, right, is that the things that we associate with the weak as being essential and good develop over a long period of time. 
right? Think about the things. Remember I asked you in the first class, I said, what is missing from the Torah's account of this? And basically all the things we talked about, right? Food, uh, things we associate with the Shabbat, culture, etc. Things we associate with the weekend. All those things are practices that develop over a long period of time. They're not there in the first time we observe it, right? So the, the, the problem of ignorance is one that only maybe dissipates over a long, over some period of time, maybe even generations. Is that problem of ignorance is gonna dissipate. I'm not talking about through the Torah, I'm saying if there were no Torah, okay? That's the thought experiment, okay? Now, there's a, there, there is another institution in world history that is, close to the seven-day week. It's known as a market cycle or a market week. So this is in various parts of the world, not, I can't say most, many little com communities had um, the practice of every N number of days, that is every five days or every six days, in the Ro Roman Empire is every eighth day, they would have a market, a market um, day, right? And in Rome, it might be something like, an eight-day cycle in which like one town has a market day on, on, on day eight, but another one might have it on day three, another one on day four, right? So you can imagine like a trader going from place to place. And this is a world in which they know nothing about the seven-day week, okay? What's really useful about that is that, um, for a couple of things, is a very, it's, it's, um, it's easy to, it's useful to compare this problem of problem of ignorance and other problems that you would have in starting a seven-day week with the problem of starting a market cycle, market cycle, okay? So, by the way, so we have, it goes back to, it's described um, by our sages, right? The practice of building on top of the seven-day week, right? We have maybe, um, we had the practice of having markets on Monday and Thursday, right? And, and public Torah reading, etc. right? But this, what we're talking about here is without a seven-day week, okay? These are obviously human inventions, never universal, and interestingly, they pre-existed the week, especially in the Roman Empire, but the week wiped the floor with this cycle. Week one, <laughs> which is another part of thing I'll talk about in the book that I'm writing, okay? Now, if you wanted to start a cycle, a market cycle, would the problem of ignorance be as great? In other words, I said, hey guys, I'm an entrepreneur. Maybe I'm a king, prince or something like that. And I say, although, you know, uh, you know, ag you know, all uh, oh, the, 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 the herders and the, um, you know, and agriculturalists in a, in, a, in a particular district and the artisans, let's all get together and make a, uh, a market. Okay. And then maybe we'll then start doing it every fifth day or sixth day or whatever it is. Is the problem of ignorance as great? Meaning, I don't know the value of this thing. Why would I do it? I'm used to doing it without it. Why would I start now? That's the problem of ignorance. I don't know the value of this thing. Is it as big a problem in the case of starting a market cycle as it is in starting a Sabbath cycle? Would it be hard to convince people to come to the market? It might be to some extent, right? But you're saying, Tikel, you're saying, you're shaking your head. I mean, I think you know, the things that would prevent people from coming to a market on a market cycle would be more like maybe seasonal stuff like bad weather conditions or location rather than timing. 
And even then that goes back to seasonal. Like, you know, I don't want to go to a market yeah. cycle. It's harvest time. But that doesn't mean like, oh, pick an arbitrary day of the week. Yeah. By the way, why might you go even during harvest time? Because mm, you have early harvest. Because what? Maybe, you know, your stuff came in a bit early and you, you can get the jump by selling, you know, your grain. Ah, yeah. Okay. So there's incentives to show up to the market. By the way, you've already jumped over this question, which is telling. This question was, do you have a hard time understanding it? And the answer to that is basically no. Once, I mean, trade, you don't need a market for trade. And once you start having markets, uh, there's all kinds of problems in setting up markets, but you understand what that is before you set up a cycle, right? So once we've established a market, that's not really a problem. It's not a problem of understanding the value of markets because you know you could get basically sell your goods at, at a you know at a, at a you know get a, get more demand for your goods that way it's more efficient to build a market for your stuff and if you're on the buy side right your buyer you can more efficiently get the stuff that you need if everyone's congregating together it's not that hard to understand and you can maybe have one experience of it and you get it now there are challenges like you said right and then what you're saying Kayla right is that there's an incentive to show up right um, in some cases even when you don't want to show up. Um, because uh, you miss out on opportunities, basically, right? There's beyond that. But in the first instance, that's what we're talking about. Okay, so think about that logic um, and how different it is, okay? Um, so one of the things here about, about the knowledge problem is that so trade we understand, feedback is immediate, very sharp contrast between starting a Sabbath cycle where you're like, what is that? And what do I benefit do I get out of? Right. Meanwhile, I'm used to my usual rhythms. Okay. Any benefit I get, you know, back to the Nitziv is going to be very, you know, intangible, certainly hard to monetize. Right. And like the market cycle. Okay. Now, the ignorance problem is just the beginning. Okay. And I'm going to walk you through this quickly. How are we doing on time? Um, but you've already got the essence of it because I've already given you the. the you got about 20, got about 20 minutes. All right. Perfect. Okay. Let's imagine for a second that we did have some inkling that the week was going to be a valuable thing. So this, the Sabbath week, a Shabbat cycle, is going to be a valuable thing. Okay? So imagine, this is the thought I like to do here for this, is to say, imagine if one of us was zapped back, like, you know, sort of Michael J. Fox, and, and not even just one of us, like anyone from today's society that, that thinks that the week is really essential and good, okay, and, and the weekend in particular, and you're zapped back to say 2,500 BCE, any part of the world, but let's say the ancient Near East. And you're like, ah, you people are not observing. You know, you need to take a break every seven days, right? Uh, and you should, you know, let's get to, let's do that, right? Let me tell you, I'm from the, you know, maybe I won't tell you I'm from the future, but I have this idea. I want to get it going. Okay. So the ignorance problem, at least for me, right, is solved because I know that the week is really valuable. Then the question is, what problems would, would we face? So right away, imagine that you try to convince somebody that this would be a good idea. What kind of skepticism do you think you'd be likely to hear? What would people tell you? Even let's, and again, let's jump over the ignorance problem for a second. Let's imagine they're like, oh yeah, I could see that. I could see that might be actually valuable. What other kind of skepticism would you hear? Why might people be skeptical? So you're saying to them, it's gonna be every seven days. They might say what? 
They could say, why seven? Why this, why this number? And why, why not 10? Right. Why not five? Okay. Why not back to what Charles was saying? Why not have it sync with the lunar cycle or something like that? Why would you do it separately? Maybe. Okay, fine. Like the market cycle, every number, but why, if you look at market cycles, they were all over the map. There's no reason why it should be seven. So that's the first problem. Why not seven? Now, now I say to them, what, what they might ask me also, right? Like they might ask you what, so what will you do every seventh day? So let's, okay. So I say six, you say seven, you say eight, but I have no idea that's going to be resolved, but let's put that aside for a second. What are we going to do every seven days again? Remember, you got no Torah. You can't refer to the Torah. So what are you going to do every seven days? Not work, right? Okay, right. does that end all questions? No, because like we have a lot of Drisha series on this and like a whole Masechet Shabbat, right? And uh, turns out defining what's work and not work, right? Especially with changing technologies and oh my God, you know, it's just, you know, that's a hard problem. That's not as big a problem in the case of the market, right? Especially, well, so defining what's a good and a commodity and standardizing it, that is a hard problem. But that is independent of the cycle problem, right? I don't have to, just, I have to figure that out. Uh, but for the rest and, and, you, know, not, uh, you know, and work, those are non-trivial, right? How many of us have had conversations with plenty of people outside of our community have no intuition for the way that we distinguish between work and not work? This would be a hard conversation, right? How about this? Who is observing this, this day of rest every seven days? In the case of the market, like you were saying before, you don't have to show up. Not everybody has to go. The Torah says, now I'm using the Torah for a second, that's just one idea, that every single person is observing the seven-day week. Is that an obvious answer? Think about today. That causes problems. It causes problems in Israeli society. It causes problems in our society, right? A much more natural thing is to take shifts in some way. Having everybody not work at a given day causes major problems, right? So the third problem you would face is who and when, right? So what roles are we playing? Okay. So there are six problems over. The first ones are basically problems of standard setting. We need to set problems. We need to set standards for what the length of the cycle. So A, is it going to be uh, connected to the seasons or not? And then how long is it going to be? That can lead to a lot of debate. I don't know why seven. I don't know six, five. Who knows, right? Number two, who's playing what roles? So when Stalin in the, in the 1920s tried to create a, an alternative to the week, what he had was everybody take a different um, day as a day off on a five-day cycle, right? So Kayla's a one, I'm a two, Charles is a three, Oz is a four, Noah's a five, and that became like our day off. People did not like that idea. But at the beginning, why not? It makes sense, right? It wasn't like the idea because they wanted a common day off, but that was because they already had experience with it, okay? And then there's the problem of what the heck is rest. So all I'm saying right now so far is if in this thought experiment, this would be a huge debate. These would be debates on three different levels as to what, what is the meaning of a day of rest and who is observing this day of rest 
and for what length of time, you know, what cycle? And you could imagine huge debates about this. Now, there's another problem. It goes back to the other thing that Sid was mentioning, which is the immateriality of the Shabbat. Immateriality. So for standard setting, think about that QWERTY keyboard again. That's the layout of your keyboard that you're looking down at it. That's a standard. There's a huge literature, and I'm, I'm in a business school right now, so I'm, I'm telling you about our technology-based business school. This is where this stuff is coming from. There are two conditions that are really, really important in solving a, a standards problem, a standard setting problem, how we decide finally, okay, it's gonna be the QWERTY keyboard, or it's gonna be red, green, yellow, which is arbitrary, right? How does that happen? There's two conditions. One is it needs to be visible. Everyone needs to be able to see that most people have now converged on this standard. And once they do, they're like, okay, we'll give in and we'll use that standard. That's what happens basically. The market tips towards one standard or another. But for that to happen, it needs to be visible. This, by the way, is what's great about cycles based on the moon and the sun in a pre-modern ancient society. Everybody in a local area can look up and see. It's visible to everybody. And they know what people, basically what the, Time is basically right. Okay, but the Shabbat, the Sabbath cycle, is not visible. Nobody can see it. Very hard to coordinate on, right? And the second part is okay. So why does everybody tip towards that new standard? Another condition is also coming from its materiality, is that it's costly to change. So why does why do people stick with the QWERTY keyboard? Right. Um, for a long time, it's because basically it would be costly to retrain everybody on a new keyboard. Um, it could also have been one back in the day. It's also, you know, everyone, you know, all these different plants have their layout already. It's costly to switch. And everybody knows that it's costly to switch. And so once it's costly to switch and everybody knows it, they're like, okay, they're not going to switch. So I'm not going to switch. And we stick with the same standard. Same thing. Imagine how, how costly it would be to switch out the red, green, yellow, and traffic lights. So it's both that it's visible and that it's costly, and they both come from the materiality of the thing. But the Shabbat, so if we had a big debate, is it five days, six days, seven day cycle? What roles are we gonna play? Uh, you know, what's work and not work? We have this big, let's say we say, fine, fine, fine. Let's try to stop these debates for just one first, you know, let's, you know, six days we're gonna work. And then we're going to have this thing. Let's imagine it's the seventh day. And we even imagine with that first Sabbath, somehow it's a good Sabbath. And then that first Sabbath is over. Do these questions go away? Have we now settled the matter of seven days after that first Sabbath? No, because I can still say, so if Charles says it should be seven days, I'm like, I think it should be six days. And we do that first Sabbath. And then let's say we agree, it was pretty good. It's pretty good, pretty good, right? And then Charles says, okay, we'll do it again another seven days. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We did it your way the first time, Charles. We're doing it my way the second time. There's nothing to stop us from doing that. It's not costly in any way to switch. Unlike, say, if I changed my whole, you know, plant, my my uh, my my factory, so that it can only make, you know, QWERTY, it's it's going to be costly to switch over. 
That's what make that's what locks in standards. But if there's nothing material about it, nothing costly, there's nothing to switch. So that's back to another that the fragility of the first week should become clear to you now. This is a hard problem. The seven day week at the very beginning to anyone who wants to start it, given it's given how amorphous these standards are, um, you know, basically the, the potential for debate on these three different levels, and because it's so um, it's immaterial and therefore hard to see, hard to coordinate on, and therefore also hard and also hard to stick with because it's not costly. Make it so it's very hard to hold in place. And wait, said that we haven't gotten. Now I'm taking you back to where we were last week because the seven-day week is not just what we would call in business school a standard-setting problem, where we all have to be on the same standard. It's also a cooperation problem. A cooperation problem is when, if everybody's doing the same thing, I have an incentive to do the opposite. If everybody closes down their stalls in the shook in that first week, right? Go back to what you were saying, Kayla. My incentive is open it up, right? And that's what we saw with the wood gatherer. So the, the Shabbat is not just fragile because it's very hard to coordinate on the standards and this kind of thing. It's because there's an incentive to break it. Very strong incentive to break it. And we said, it's not just that I'm greedy about it. It's that I better, you know, to protect my family, to feed my family, to keep my family warm. It is going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to be worried about this. Same kind of logic that says, you know, I hoard things like, uh, you know, um, uh, what's, you know, the pandemic, early pandemic stuff. Very easy to emphasize with. So the more people, right. So what you should come up, get now, get, get, get here in the sense is that this is an extremely difficult enterprise. The assumption we might have is because it's just a social agreement, it would be easy to start, is dead wrong. It's exactly the opposite. This is basically impossible to start. And by the way, I just went through all these problems, bracketing the problem that we don't even know the value of the thing, ignorance. If you go back to the ignorance problems, it seems just infinitesimally, you know, a harder problem to solve, right? So there's a long, there's a lot of academic literature to how to solve the kinds of problems like the wood gatherer, right? The, uh, the commons problems, like say everybody, you know, so how do you get people, you know, fishermen in a fishery not to overfish? How do you get herdsmen not to overgraze, et cetera? In order to solve that problem, they all have to understand the value of cooperation. So you have to, everyone has to conceptually understand that if everybody fishes too much, there's not gonna be any fish left in the sea. And if everybody overgrazes, there's not gonna be any you know, grass left, okay? That's not sufficient. Even when people understand that, even people understand that we're gonna destroy this planet. If we keep on doing what we're doing, we know that's not sufficient. It's still hard for us to, to, to avoid destroying the planet. In the case of the seven-day week, they wouldn't even have known the value of cooperation, as we've already established. So let me conclude by showing you that the Torah doesn't, is not just consistent with the scientific and what must be true about the uh, launching of the seven-day week. It's actually, this is the sense, where, like I'm saying, it's doing better science. It's very, very clued in to the problems I just laid out that a Sabbath entrepreneur would have faced. And it, 
it's telling you a story about how they were solved, right? So for those oh, seven problems again. So how do we standardize the timing? Well, we dictated seven days. That's how we do it. How do we set the roles? Well, it's going to be everybody. Make it clean, right? Make it so that, uh, that everyone's going to have to rest. What about definition of work? Well, we know basically we just saw that verse. It's the just juxtaposition with the um, the building of the Mishkan, that becomes the basis for at least the way that our sages solve the problem, okay? How do you make it visible? This is maybe the most important one. We build it into nature. So they have a supernatural experience. It's like, it feels natural to them, after, especially after that first uh, week or two, because they expect the man every day. It feels as natural to them as the seasons do. It solves that problem, okay? Um, where is it? You know, we saw, you know, uh, make it costly to change. That becomes, that's the karate, right? So basically you cut off from the people. Uh, and and, and uh, how do we eliminate the free riding problem? That is the incentive to not to cooperate. We do it through harsh punishment. We saw that last week, right? It's tuned in to the problem. And then finally, how do we overcome the ignorance problem? Well, that's the training period. We take people out of their, these are people who are ripped out of their status quo. Nobody among the people, the, the people who are the protagonists in our story would have thought that they're, they, they, they knew their existing social rhythms were essential or good. It's a story about people who are available potentially to change and to accept a new social rhythm. Uh, and then they get a training period to build it into them. Right, and so now we know why the seventy week was invented only once, even though it's just an informal social agreement, and we experience it essential and good. The answer is because it's impossibly hard to start if we think about it in the in this way, and this is a way that the Torah is cluing us into. And we also know why the Torah is claiming that the weak imparts special knowledge that God is sanctifying us. Those two things go together. What is it saying? The Torah is saying, you could not have built this on your own. You would never have imagined it and you couldn't have coordinated, that's the standard set of problems, and cooperated to build such a radical departure from existing social rhythms. And that's why it was invented only once. That's the Torah's message about this. It's saying God intervened into history to give Israel and the world this gift. Makes sense. That's why the Torah is so obsessed with the Shabbat. This is, you know, the Torah is uh, obsessed with the Shabbat. It wants to, to herald the invention, this amazing invention of the seven-day week, which otherwise would not exist. That's why it builds it so deeply into its, um, its flaws and its narratives. Um, and that's why the Torah has such deep knowledge of these problems. So where I got to this theory, right, partly is because I'm a social scientist and um, sort of uh, uh, sensitive uh, and, and, and a physical professor and sensitive to these kinds of issues, but it came from reading the text. That's where this came from. And the Torah is clued in to the problems that a Sabbath entrepreneur would have faced. Uh, and would not have been able to solve is its claim. And it's a pretty strong claim because here's the amazing thing is it's here. That's what that verse is telling you. It's like, oh, 
pay attention. Do you see this, this, uh, this institution that you know and love? It shouldn't be here. The fact that it's here tells you something. And that's the rest of the verse. Right. Um, I, I, I know I think we're done on time. I could just say what's here. Um, the last, there's a couple of things that I think as a proof, I think um, make this very compelling. It's my last slide here. Um, one is no one is ever compelled by, I've never met anybody who's ever been compelled by a proof that is a, just a you know, conceptual uh, proof somehow, logical proof in the sort of Greek style. That's not the kind of proof that this is. This is about, it doesn't work basically unless we have experience. It comes through intergenerational experience is what it's talking about. Coming through practice rather than belief. The last thing I'll leave you with, though, is like that. I think this is the one that, that um, well, there's one piece, piece that I really, really enjoy. So go back to our first le lecture. Uh, the, the, if you remember, the part of the message of the Shabbat, and Rabbi David Foreman develops this point very well in some of his, some of his work, is that Shabbat is about, so um, the, 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 uh, you know, the fact that Shabbat commemorates creation is odd in a way because um, it's strange to commemorate the, the cessation of creation. But as we saw in those first couple of sukim in the, um, the uh, uh, in, in Breshit of the Shabbat, um, one of the things that the Torah is emphasizing is the cutting off of the, uh, of, of the creation process, right? And so there's a message there essentially about um, stopping tinkering with the creation and being sort of what, as Rabbi Foreman calls, a disciplined creator. Uh, but the point is, so it's about limited intervention. And so what you see here is a really cool, I think, paradox, which is that on the one hand, the Shabbat's message is about being a disciplined creator and stopping tinkering, resting from creating, that we're supposed to model that, um, we're supposed to do that too, following God's model. Um, but it's also about God's intervention into, into nature to give us this gift. Um, and the last thing I'll say, I guess, is that, uh, you know, there's, there's a really interesting paper I read a few years ago, um, which raises the question, should we want a proof of God? And maybe we shouldn't. Because um, think of all the suffering and injustice of the world. The fact that if we, if we really had a proof that God existed, wow, would that reinforce those questions? But what's cool about this to me is that this is not just a general you know, abstract idea that God exists. This is the idea that God intervened into history to give us a gift. And it's a gift that we now regard as, now we, not just us, but the world around us views as essential and views as good. So we should appreciate it. Uh, but that's the kind of God I think that we would be more comfortable with. Uh, doesn't make those questions go away, the questions of theodicy, of, of Tzadik Aralo. Um, but it is uh, giving us confidence in uh, our relationship with God, at least does for me, um, but one where a God is intervening in history to give us a gift uh, to, um, and one that we then develop uh, as that's, that's the role, the covenantal role that we play in um, making Shabbat. So I'll stop there. Um, I think I must have gone over, Kelly, you, you would be good about that. Um, well, I do. I did want to leave a few a few moments to uh, answer any last questions. All right. Um, I hope I left off in a, in a good place for. Oh, I see some some comments here. Uh, Ozzy. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how yes. how 
yeah. you, you've, you've created a social science um, proof of the Sabbath. I'm not sure how that relates to, to knowledge of God per se. I don't know how how you can from that you can you can go on to say that we can know God from the Sabbath. Good. So I, I think well, so first of all, you said something nice in the chat here. The death penalty is meant to make Shabbat stick. Yes, I think it's it's more. I would interpret it more as a um, as Chazal would call a mitzvah l'sha'a than a mitzvah l'zmani, meaning that it's targeted towards this moment of fragility. Um, not it's on the books, right? But um, it's enacted here because this the Shabbat is so fragile at this moment when it's get when it's getting going. Um, so just to answer that question. Um, Good. Okay. So then the last point to me. So I think the point is, I'll go back to, um, well, I'll leave it, leave it here. Uh, the, the nature of the proof, so to speak, or the way that it imparts knowledge, the word proof is, is a tricky word. Um, but the, the point is that uh, the, the Torah is cluing us into something that we might not otherwise have appreciated, but we do once we work out the problem, think about it, about a world that doesn't have the Torah and try to account for the weak. And when we do that, we realize that basically there is no, uh, it, it's, it's basically impossible to understand how it is that we could have gotten started given the problems that, a, that the Sabbath entrepreneur would have faced. And those are the problems that I laid out there, the ignorance problems and the coordination and the cooperation problems that, um, that the Sabbath entrepreneur would have faced are just insurmountably high, right? We should have an image in our mind of like, you know, one person building or a group of people building like, you know, uh, you know, the world's biggest building by far, by far, you know, in, you know, 3000 uh, years ago. It's that it's the equivalent of not the equivalent of that. Uh, but something. Okay. I mean, and I think. Then, he, yeah. yeah. And, I and mean, I think. Other, go ahead. The, the other part of it is it's not simply that that is hard to account for. It's that the Torah lays out uh, clues us into those problems. So it's deeply aware of those problems. Right. But yet the. The week exists. I mean, I think you can say, I mean, you can you can show from the Sabbath that God also rested on the seventh day, and that's a, that's a knowledge of God per se. But you can you can have atheists rest on the Sabbath too. Um, right. I think the problem for an atheist would be that um, the what the Torah is sort of saying to an atheist is not really directed, I think, to an atheist. What the Torah is saying to an atheist is saying, "Oh, the seven day week thing that you observe that you like." Right, that you can have a hard time living without, and that basically now is prevalent throughout the whole world. It's the beat to which the world uh, marches. How did that come about? Why was it invented only once? Uh, and when you work through these problems, you can't solve it, can you? And meanwhile, isn't it interesting that a, a book written 3,000 years ago is very clued into this and is telling you this is how it started? Okay, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Though the atheists could say it started with one man's idea and it slowly built up over time, but that's that's, that's yeah, easy. So, I, I'm, I'm, um, if we had more time, what I would say is the atheists can't say that. That's not a viable theory. That's what I'm I'm showing you basically. Um, okay. Atheist, you can't just. That's not how I. That's not how social institutions are built, and not a social institution like this. That's impossible. Uh, that's what I'm basically showing you is that like you would have to solve. You can't avoid these problems. And they're basically impossible to solve. So atheists can say that they'd be wrong, basically. <laughs> and how about the first sap, first man observing the Sabbath? How about the what? 
you know, our forefathers also observed the Sabbath. And we have a medrash that says our forefathers observed the Sabbath. Oh, I think I've said to you, first, right? First man observed the Sabbath as well. Yeah. Um, that I don't think is a problem from this standpoint. I think it's, um, you know, what the medrash is up to when it's telling you things like that um, is unclear, I think. Uh, because the, you know, I think those midrashim are not meant to be taken literally. I don't think it's not like the Torah is unable to tell you the stories it wants to tell you, and the midrash has to like somehow fill in the gaps, right? It's teaching you something. There's another way to think about it, which is that somehow the week was taught to um, the avot in some way, um, and then was lost. Um, this is a little bit Hirsch sort of says something like that, um, and was lost when they were in Egypt. That's another possible way to think about it, um, partly right. because it's fragile. I'm afraid to uh, put an end to this, but yeah, yeah, yeah. if people have future questions, uh, Dr. Zergman Siva. You can always email me. Yeah, if this makes you think about stuff and you have questions, um, I know that it's a little different than the normal, uh, you know, way to end off a, a Drisha class, but um, hopefully it was interesting and um, it was very helpful for me to engage with you all about it. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us through this five part series. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you at future Drisha classes, either Seder Telling next Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, Eastern Time, or in future classes starting up after Pesach.